0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? It's good. That's, good. That's good. That's excellent. Well, I'm not Breck. I know we've had a long, a long series with Breck, uh, but I do want to say thank you to Breck for filling in last Sunday. Uh, we, uh, we, we fought the COVID battle again last week, and uh, we, we made it out on the other side, so everybody's doing well in my family, so thank you for the, the prayers and uh, the encouragement. Well, uh, so we are going to continue on in Psalms uh, I'm calling this the Summer of Psalms. I'm hoping that that'll you know, take root. Maybe we can make a banner or something like that. And see, I think I, I am recording here. Yes. Okay. So again, Summer of Psalms. And this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 63. So Psalm 63. I chose this particular psalm because of a sermon that I listened to a couple years ago by Phil Johnson. Um, what I found helpful uh, is that he spent a lot of time talking about the context leading up to David writing the psalm. Um, now, Breck emphasized in his full armor of God study the importance of really digging into the scriptures, and he's right. Uh, spending time really looking at the background of a passage and con- uh, considering the meaning of the passage, to me it's kind of like going from looking and watching a, a TV show in, in black and white back when we used to do that, and now looking at it like in full HD. So uh, just getting that context is, is really helpful. So I would just encourage you as, as you're reading and studying to, to meditate on it, and you just make sure that you're getting the full impact and, and gravity of the text. Uh, so the backstory of this morning's passage centers on David and his son Absalom. So a significant amount of scripture is dedicated what hap- to what happened in this story, especially considering uh, compared to some of the other stories in Scripture uh, that we're f- very familiar with. And I think part of the reason for that is this is not one of the more feel-good parts of, of David's life. Uh, this is a very difficult time for David. And actually, many of the psalms that, that we have uh, were written during this time of his life. I was pretty surprised whenever I started really digging in how many psalms come out of this this difficult time period. So our goals this morning for this study are to understand the context of the passage. So again, we're going to spend most of our time looking at what happened prior to Psalm 63, prior to to David writing this. And we're going to look at some situations that David didn't handle particularly well. Uh, He was the leader of the people of Israel. And overall, I think he, when you evaluate David's life, he was an amazing leader. But even amazing leaders can have significant flaws that in in this case impacted the people uh, in in some devastating ways. And then finally, we're going to consider the application of Psalm 63 in our own lives. So let's take a moment to read the passage. Uh, This is in the ESV. And this is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied, as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let me let me pray before we get get going too much farther. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning that we can meet together and study your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for for each person in this room and how you've brought us here together uh, through your sovereign plan and will. And as as we study uh, the the life of of David and his sons, and we consider um, just. How life can be challenging and, and very difficult uh, through our sin, through through the sins of others. Lord, you are faithful, and uh, even even though um, we 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 consistently go astray like sheep, uh, you are the good shepherd that uh, has has lovingly shown mercy and kindness to to your people. So, Lord, as we study today, I pray that uh, you will guide um, my words and uh, that. You will uh, give everyone here ears to hear. and we' we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. All right, so again, we're going to look at the context of this particular passage, starting off. And the first line, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So this lets us know exactly where David was when he wrote this psalm. So the wilderness of Judah is located east of Jerusalem. Uh, it's just before the Dead Sea next to modern-day Jordan. So if you're looking at, at a map and you're looking at Israel, uh, Jerusalem is kind of right in the middle, kind of offset to the east. And then you've got the Dead Sea that's to the east of that. And then uh, the, um, the wilderness of Judah is right there between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And I'm looking at my parents back there because they've re- they went to Israel and can, you know, have talked to us about uh, what it looks like there. So, um, all right. So, this wilderness. When I, when I think of a wilderness, I think of like a jungle or lots of uh, trees and and things like that that you could go and and get lost in. Uh, that's not this wilderness. This is think think instead more like Death Valley. So not not a real fun place to go. Um, in fact, I watched a, a YouTube video of this guy that was walking around in this wilderness of Judah, and he walked around for about an hour, and I think I saw two bushes in the whole, whole thing. So um, it, it reminds me a little bit of when I've gone to a place like White Sands, New Mexico, where you can go and, and uh, you, you might have a good time on the train for about 30 minutes to an hour, and then you're just like, okay, I need some water, I need some AC, this was fun for a moment, it's time to, to, to go back to uh, the creature comforts of, of life. Now, the overall size of, of this particular wilderness is about the size of Rhode Island. So it's a pretty decent size. It's uh, rocky and mountainous, uh, a dangerous place. If you're to fall down and, and hurt yourself, you're, you're in trouble. And it's been uninhabited for the most of, of recorded history. Now, David uh, spent a decent amount of time in this area. So early in his life, David fled from Saul uh, due to Saul's jealousy. Now, of course, people love David because he struck down Goliath. And, you know, right after that, the the people were singing, Saul has struck down his his thousands and David his ten thousands. So, of course, Saul did not particularly care for that song and, uh, you know, became jealous of David and, uh, you know, was chasing him down. So in in one particular uh, time of Saul chasing David in 1 Samuel, Uh we we see that he is chasing David through this wilderness. Uh and in this particular one, in in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, uh we can read that David was living in the strongholds of Engedi. Now, Engedi was on the far eastern side of the wilderness. So this would have been close to the Dead Sea Dead Sea. And uh it actually means spring of the kid. So it's this nice little kind of oasis-like area, at least from what I saw online. And it, it appears to be a popular tourist tra- attraction even to this day with a waterfall. So this is a place that David lived for a short amount of time. Uh, but at some point, Saul gets wind, wind of this and he goes and, and chases after David. And at that point is when we have the the fairly infamous story of David hiding in the cave and uh, Saul needs to go to the restroom. And so, you know, David's waiting there and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and then of course, once Saul exits the cave, he's gone down a little ways, and, and David, you know, yells out to him and says, "Hey, I had you, you know, I could could have got you, uh, but but I chose not to." So David was familiar with this area. Now I don't necessarily believe that this is the point at which uh, David wrote this psalm, and the reason I don't think that is because in Psalm 63 he refers to him at the end as king. He refers to himself as king, and this was definitely before uh, David was was king. The other thing is is that um, you know since he refers to himself as king, if if you remember when um, you know David had lots or had opportunities to kill Saul like like the one that we just read, and David would never have presumed to supplant or replace Saul because he knew that he was God's. uh, Anointed or chosen king, and uh, so again, that's that's one of the reasons that I don't believe he wrote the psalm at that time. Uh, All right, so some other figures that may have spent some time in this wilderness, um, some other people, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan, and so uh, this wilderness again was right there near the Jordan. So it's, it's quite possible that that John was was in there as well in the wilderness. Jesus, again, for, for 40 days spent time in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's very likely that he, that he spent time in this wilderness. And, you know, I was just as I was thinking about this, of, of this psalm that we just read, uh, and we're, we're going to read it again and go through it in more detail, but just imagining Jesus meditating on this psalm as he spent 40 days without food and water. So again, if you're going to go through one of the most difficult times of your life, which we'll see, this is going to be one of David's most difficult times. This is not a place that you would want to go and spend a little bit of time. Well, now that we have a little bit of geographic context of where David's at, we're going to look at the history leading up to this psalm. So let's fast forward a little bit in David's life. After Saul dies... At age 30, David becomes king, and he's going to reign for 40 years. David was a warrior king, and in fact, one of the reasons that he was not allowed to build the temple was because of all the blood that he had shed. God had raised him up to defeat the surrounding nations, and for the most part, he was faithful with that task. And he was really very successful in everything he did. Now, that changes, though, uh, once we get to 2 Samuel 11, if you want to take a look at it. Give you a moment to turn there. So the text says that during the time of which kings go out to battle, David sent out his army, and yet he remained in Jerusalem. Now, I was thinking about this and. And uh, I don't necessarily think that it was wrong for David to stay behind. Uh, however, the text does make a point of saying that David was laying on his couch while, you know, his his men were going out to battle. Uh, he was the king, and so ultimately he had the authority to send out his warriors to to uh, to fight. Um, however, uh, in this situation, it, it's not going to play out well for him. Now he gets he gets up and he goes one night on the, on the roof to walk about, which was not uncommon. Uh, the roofs at that time were flat, and it was the, the time of night where it would be nice and cool to go and, and walk around and, and just enjoy things. However, in, in this particular time, uh, he sees a beautiful woman bathing who just happens to be the wife of one of his great warriors. That one moment, David decides to take a longer gaze, and the consequences of his lingering Would have impacts on the rest of his life, his family's life, and the faithfulness of the nation. David asks about her and learns that she is Uriah's wife. He sends messengers and she came to him and he sleeps with her. Bathsheba conceives and now David has a problem. His solution? Well, let's go ahead and call Uriah in from the battlefield. Uh, Maybe I can get him to spend a little bit of time with his wife. So he tries that. He, he tries to encourage Uriah to go and spend a little bit of time with his wife. And the first night doesn't work. Uriah is very noble, especially whenever you compare uh, the, the way that David is acting. Uh, Uriah sleeps uh, at the gate of David's house. Because remember, his, his commanding officers are out fighting the fight. Um, well, the next night, David tries a different tactic. He says, oh, well, maybe I can get him to come in and have, uh, you know, a little bit of wine and, and uh, get drunk, and maybe then he'll go home and spend some time with his wife. Well, that doesn't work as well. Uh, David, uh, Uriah spends another night uh, sleeping outside uh, David's home. Now, when, when uh, David sees that this plan has failed, he comes up with plan B, and he sends a letter to, with Uriah uh, back to the battlefield. So, of course, Uriah is basically taking his own death warrant uh, back, to, uh, back to the battlefield. In that death warrant, uh, David advises his commanders to go ahead and pull back and allow Uriah to keep fighting and to be killed. So Uriah is exposed and is killed in battle. So how could this happen? How could a man who wrote portions of the scripture and did so many great things Rebel against God and what he knew to be true. David had to deal with the same reality that each person in this room has to deal with. We all have a sin nature. And as the old saying goes, even the best of men are still men at best. So we're going to look at some more, um, really some more horrible things that happened in David's life. And that's on purpose. Uh, It's not to demonize David. But it's to understand that God uses sinful people like you and me, and David, for his purposes and for his glory. David broke God's commandments. He committed adultery. He indirectly murdered a man. I say indirectly because David was not the one who physically harmed Uriah, and yet God still held him accountable. So in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet says to David, "'You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword.' And have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now this is one of the most grievous passages in Scripture. Because of the gravity of the sin and by the man who committed these sins. David clearly understood God's righteous and holy standard, and he also understood that he deserved to die right then. So, what does he do in that situation? He repents. God extends grace to David, and yet there were still serious consequences for his sin. So, now we're going to fast forward a little bit in David's life. Many years have passed. And the nation of Israel is well established. Let's look at it from a, a big picture standpoint. David has united the kingdom, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The throne has been established in Jerusalem. A lot of good things have happened. However, it's also highly likely that a lot, or if, if not all, um, most of the people were now familiar with David's sin, with Bathsheba. Uh, as well as the murder of Uriah the Hittite. The people may have also been aware that David repented of his sins and received the Lord's forgiveness. Now, we rarely see this from the popular Christian leaders of our day, much less political leaders. And remember, David is king. He is the political leader of Israel. Can you imagine if one of our top political leaders uh, repented of supporting abortion? it is a blessing to have leaders who repent and do so publicly when necessary. All of that said, though, there are consequences to sin, and the consequences of some sin are much worse than others. And as I've read these passages over and over again, it just doesn't seem like that David was the same as he was before the sin. It seems like he was kind of almost on on top of the world. You know, the Lord's just, you know, uh, orchestrating so many amazing things in his life, and... You know, at this point, it's, it really is a devastating event. Two people have died, Uriah and the child, and now he has the wife of the man that was murdered. So I've talked about David a good deal, but now let's talk about his children, because one son will play an important role leading into this psalm. In 2 Samuel 13, we read about his son Absalom and daughter Tamar, both by his wife Maacah and then his oldest son, Amnon, by his wife, Ahinoam. So I know there's, there's a lot of names in there, but just remember Absalom and Tamar kind of go together, and then Amnon. Uh, these are all children of David, uh, but they are the, uh, two by one wife and then one by another wife. So I'm going to abbreviate the story for the sake of time, but Amnon, again, the half-brother of Absalom, and Tamar, uh, so Amnon has a secret love for his half-sister and finds a tricky way to get along with her by faking an illness, which involves deceiving his father. He rapes her and shamefully disgraces her, angering their father, David. There is no punishment for Amnon, and Tamar goes to live with her brother Absalom. Two years later, Absalom takes revenge. He's had plenty of time to stew on this. He's got Tamar living with him, and... Uh, he as well manipulates his father to get close to Amnon and has his servants murder his half-brother. Then Absalom, of course, flees. So he's murdered his half-brother and he flees. Again, this is an echo of the sins of David in adultery and murdering Uriah. Now, don't get me wrong. wrong. Both Amnon and Absalom are not victims. Like they're, It wasn't because David's sin that, that you know they um, were fatally... Uh, led to to their own sins. They are responsible for their own sins. Uh, But they did follow in, in their father's footsteps. So I mentioned with Amnon that there was no punishment for his rape of his sister. In fact, in both cases, there was a real lack of justice on David's part in holding his sons accountable. Absalom flees, and even after he comes back, he is never charged with his brother's murder. Why did David, the king, fail to address these law, law-breaking situations by his children? Well, one commentary says, It's entirely, entirely possible that David failed to understand the lo- that love that did not discipline would be interpreted by his son or sons not as love but as indifference. While children who are disciplined can be expected to complain at the, at the moment, they eventually interpret the punishment as an act of love. This is God's motive for punishment. Again, love is God's motive for punishment for those that love Him. So I was thinking about this as a parent. You know, these are difficult decisions to punish your children at times. And when I punish my own children, I always try to make sure that they understand that the motive is love. But it is important that we discipline and punish our children so that they can understand the consequences of their actions. And in this case, it's even more important because David is not only just a father in this situation, He's also a king. Another commentary said, the other reality is that it's hard to punish a child for, for what the child sees the parent do. So if your kid sees you eating cookies in bed, then of course they want to eat cookies in bed as well. And as I was, uh, I was practicing this last night, uh, I read that line, and, and uh, my daughter thought that I was speci- talking about a specific situation. I don't even remember that situation. <laughs> but uh, so. <clears throat> so all that said, David's failure to provide justice in both of these situations will have costly effects. And as I was thinking about this, it, it really makes you wonder um, if David was continuing to follow the commands of Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So justice is a significant theme throughout this story, and is important in our day as well. The scriptures teach that no partiality should be shown in the court. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor? Okay, so back to um, back to David and Absalom. So at this point in, in our narrative, um, Absalom has fled, and he's been away for at least a couple of years, and he went to go and flee to his uh, his father-in-law. Um, and so he's kind of in a, in a safe haven place, but Joab, David's military commander, gets a little bit concerned, because again, this is... The king's son, and he understands that uh, Absalom poses a threat to the throne. So Joab convinces David to bring Absalom uh, to come back to Jerusalem. Now Absalom does come back, but rather than repenting of his sin and submitting to the Lord as well as his father, uh, Absalom takes a little bit different approach. So I know I've gone a little long into the the setup of this, and we are we are going to eventually get to Psalm 63, um, but. Uh, I think the context is really helpful and, and uh, that's what I've has really stuck with me as I've, I've been thinking about this. So let's take a look at 2 Samuel 14 and the description of Absalom. And this is in verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, There was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, about five pounds by the king's weight. So Asalom kind of had the look of what all the pagan nations around them valued in a king. He had really nice hair. (laughs) And if you remember, this is what the people of Israel desired whenever they asked for a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations around them. So continuing on in in second Samuel fifteen, after Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and fifty men to run before him, there again that's kind of a looking back at the other nations and what they did and trying to to have a really good image. Uh, Absalom's going for that image approach. He used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice and whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel what, uh, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So in today's terms, we might call Absalom a social justice warrior. He uses his superficial style and his manipulative tactics to increase his influence. Now remember... He took justice in his own hands not too long ago when he killed his brother. And now he's saying he wants to judge the land. But he really has no interest in justice. People recognize that he is the king's oldest son and must have assumed that as the king was fairly old at this point, that it might be a good idea for them to start submitting to Absalom. Sadly, he does it in a way that disparages his own father. There is no man designated by the king to hear you. And this also may be, be an indication that, that David has, has failed to provide men to judge in these situations. The text isn't really clear on what's, what's happening here, or why uh, there's you know, a lack of judgment, or if there is a lack of judgment. Um, we do know that, again, we've seen a lot of injustices with regards to uh, Amnon, you know, and Tamar, Tamar lived for two years in, in Absalom's house, and there was really no justice for her. And with Absalom, he murdered his brother, but there, there was again no justice in that situation. Uh, so it is likely that the people saw that and said, What's the deal? Like, there, if, if, uh, if there's no accountability there, then, you know, can we really get a fair hearing? Regardless, we see that Absalom has a plan and he's about to execute it. He starts sending out secret messengers, and he has a plan to announce himself as king. And finally, that, that news makes its way too, to David. In verse 13, we read, "'And a messenger came to David, saying, "'The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom.' "'Then David said to all his servants "'who were with him at Jerusalem, "'Arise and let us flee, "'or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. "'Go quickly!' lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Now there is an interesting thing that happens at this point in the story the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant to take with David. In verse 25, David says, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. And if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now, just a little bit of context on this. And again, it helps you to see where David's at right now. He he um, like In the past, the Israelites had treated the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. Like, let's just take this, and hopefully we'll win the battle here and there. And eventually, that doesn't play out for them like they, they hoped. And the Philistines uh, take possession of the Ark. And uh, long story short, the, the Ark makes it back miraculously to the Israelites, and David has that with him and is able to go and, and spend time with it Uh, and spend time with the Lord in in his sanctuary. Um, But here we see that David is not going to take that approach as treating it like a good luck charm. He understands that God has brought the ark back sovereignly and that it belongs in Jerusalem. And he trusts that no matter what happens, um, if if God brings him back to Jerusalem or not, he's going to trust God as sovereign in this matter. Okay, so moving on, we're going to look at verse 30 here. And it says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, to take you back to uh, Brecht's study a few weeks ago. He talked about, if you'll remember, he would say, hey, I was in the ER and I, you know, I, not the ER, but in surgery. And I would say a short prayer, just Lord, I'm, I'm having to deal with a, a difficult situation, a difficult fracture. And, um, you know, he would just say a, a short, quick prayer. And that's what, what uh, David does in this situation. David understands that Ahithophel, which was his trusted counselor, ...has betrayed him, and that Ahithophel is a very wise man, and that if Absalom follows Ahithophel's counsel, that he's in trouble. Well, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him, with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, "'If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. If you return to the city and say to Absalom, "'I will be your servant, O king,' As I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are there with them, Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So as David prayed his his really quick prayer to defeat the the uh, council of Ahithophel, God answers it immediately, and he sends his friend Hushai. And uh, so uh, we'll, we'll take a look at what happens in, in Hushai here in just a second. But at this point, I want you to think about David. He's He's left Jerusalem. He's headed down the road, and he's traveling through that death valley-like place that we talked about earlier. This Judean wilderness. So, um, at that moment, also Ahithophel is going to provide counsel to to Absalom, um, and one of the the other wicked things that happens here that's that's just horrible uh, is Ahithophel provides counsel to Absalom that to show that he's in charge, it would be wise to sleep with David's concubines in a tent on the rooftop for all Israel to see. Now, if if Ahithophel knew the scriptures, then he completely disregards them because Leviticus 20.11 says, if a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, the penalty is death. So again, we're just ignoring the scriptures in so many different ways here. So everything looks bad at this point. David is in a vulnerable position, and if Absalom attacks, the game is over. So let's move on to verse 17 and look at the actual counsel of Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel said to Absalom, "'Let me choose 12,000 men, "'and I will arise and pursue David tonight. "'I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged "'and throw him into a panic, "'and all the people who are with him will flee. "'I will strike down only the king.' and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So again, if, if Absalom takes this advice, then he's probably going to win. Well, then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite. So this is David's friend that he, he prayed and God answered David's prayer. So call Hushai the Archite, and let us hear what he has to say. So when Hushai the Archite, uh, or when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, "Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak." So then Hushai said to Absalom, "This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good." Now I'm reading this very slowly on purpose. And I'm going to skip over the next part because Hushai kind of he's trying to to buy some time, and so it's a long passage here. But the gist of it is is that uh, David is a great warrior, and if you follow uh, Absalom's I mean uh, Ahithophel's advice, then David is going to like because he's such a great warrior, he's going to be able to fight back and and win, and uh, so. Again, long story short, Hushai convinces Absalom that uh, he should not follow Ahithophel's advice and that he should, should wait and not attack uh, David. So, <clears throat> at this point, um, we've pretty much got all the context that, that I wanted to get through to get to, to our psalm. And again, remember, David is, is writing this psalm or, or, uh, while he's in the wilderness. And I don't think that he knew the outcome of what was going to happen. He's kind of stuck in this, this state of uncertainty where he doesn't know if, if he's going to be attacked. Um, he doesn't know what's going to happen with the kingdom. Now, eventually, a messenger was sent to David, and his small group was able to cross the Jordan. David was out, able to rally the troops, and, uh, and Absalom is killed. And so um, that's the... I know we went through just a lot of details, and i just give you the the Cliff Notes version of the ending. Um, But I I want you to kind of know what what happens next. All right. So again, you know, David's in the desert. He's been betrayed by his beloved son. The people of his kingdom that he has loved and fought for for so many years have turned on him. And he really hasn't been himself for, for years but when we get to the psalm, and, and as we read through it here, again, here in just a second, just think about how beautiful and how amazing this psalm is, and how God uses um, David during this difficult time, all these difficult circumstances, and how many people have been blessed over the years through this psalm. So let me read it again. Psalm 63, a psalm with David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. "'Earnestly I seek you. "'My soul thirsts for you. "'My flesh faints for you, "'as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. "'So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, "'beholding your power and glory. "'Because your steadfast love is better than life, "'my lips will praise you. "'So I will bless you as long as I live. "'In your name I will lift up my hands. "'My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food.' All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So, let's talk about some lessons, some applications that we can take based off of the context of everything that we just talked about, as well as looking at the text of Psalm 63. And uh, my good friend Russ Rice made me uh, remember that application is important. So, he said, don't forget your application points. So, here we are. So, the first point is. No matter the circumstances, seek God. So David starts by saying, Oh God, you are my God. It must seem like everything is crashing down on him. And yet he has no doubt in his position with the Lord. What an amazing identity. He is our God. No matter what happens or how bad things get, he is our God. Is this something that you remember and pray on for a regular on a regular basis. I hope so. He then says, earnestly, I seek you. When the wheels are coming off the wagon, do you seek God? That's what was happening for David. I was talking a little bit about this yesterday with Susan, and I I think sometimes it's easy to have a utopian idea of Christianity where when everything gets peaceful in life, um, when everything's peaceful in my life is when I'll be in a good place to know that I'm really seeking God the right way. And that's not the answer. Whether it's calm or storm, we should seek God. And I've loved, as I was thinking about this, this uh, concept of seeking God, I, I just love the KJV version of Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So, again, when things are going well, seek God. When things are going so so, seek God. And when things are going poorly, seek God. All right, point number two is remember his blessings. So, starting in verse two of Psalm 63, David recalls looking upon the sanctuary and beholding God's power and glory. Would it have been awesome to go in and see the Ark of the Covenant and, and see the sanctuary? David also, as he's walking down the road, uh, thinking about Psalm 63, I wonder if he reflected on when he danced with joy as the ark was entering in the city of Jerusalem. He had so many memories to draw upon and and remember uh, the blessings of God. He also remembers the blessings as he meditates in, in the watches of the night. Stephen Lawson writes, When David awoke in the night, his first and best thought was about God. He was a man with a mind that sought the Lord. No wonder he had a God-satisfied soul. When I wake up at night, many times I'm thinking, how can I go back to sleep? One of my goals after this lesson is to take this example and put it into practice. This was David's practice, and he counted it a blessing to reflect upon these memories of these special times when, when the Lord uh, was helping him during this hardship. All right, my third application point is to praise the Lord. So this whole psalm is a psalm of praise, but there are some specific verses to highlight. Uh, He describes the steadfast love uh, as better than life itself, and my lips will praise you. This is a statement we need to remind us of hope on this earth and to look forward to heaven when we will experience God's love apart from this body of death. In verse 4, he says, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Now remember, he is in the wilderness. Isn't it wonderful he could praise the Lord despite these circumstances? Number four, remember that vengeance is the Lord's. David recognized that God is the giver of life and that he takes it away. Keep in mind that one of those who sought to destroy his life was his, was his own son. Now, we know from later verses that David's hope was for mercy on Absalom. like he didn't, he didn't want the destruction of his son. But at the same time, he understood that anyone that opposed the Lord's anointed was ultimately opposing the Lord as well. Now, for us today, as we're thinking about, um, you know, just every day, Life. Um, it, we were going through Walmart yesterday, and again, as we were leaving, we were talking about how you just can't go anywhere without seeing the other utter depravity around us. You know, you look at the mayonnaise aisle, and there was LGBTQ mayonnaise that's like rainbow colors. And uh, on uh, on Friday, uh, I was at uh, a, a convention. It was the Republican convention, and we we're supporting. Uh, Equal protection of of the unborn, and uh, so Stephen Darwin and I were there, and we're sitting there at a restaurant, and of course the first thing that he pointed out when we sat down was like, "Hey, look, there's a flag behind me. It's LGBTQ," and uh, so then at lunch the whole time, as I'm looking, like right behind his head was that flag, so just constantly reminded. Um, but as that can be frustrating, it can be discouraging to think that like. These ideas are, are just getting, gaining so much ground in our culture. But we also have to remember that vengeance is the Lord's, and he's going to fight his battle for his own name and his own glory. And then my last point here is, is to rejoice. Verse 11 says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who, sw- all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David again understood the bigger picture. He understood that God was sovereign and that no matter what the outcome, he was secure in his father's hand. So in in closing, um, I'd like for us to consider some differences between David, Absalom, and Jesus. We talked about David's shortcomings at length. However, we must remember that he repented of his sin and he lived a life marked by faithfulness to the Lord. In fact, in Acts 13, Stephen just before his martyrdom, described David like this. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have founded David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who who will do all my will. Now Absalom, on the other hand, from the, the picture that we get in the scriptures, was vengeful, unrepentant, vain, and arrogant. And as I was thinking about the end of this situation for David, I was reminded how Absalom died. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his hair, that beautiful hair that, that he loved, his hair caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak, Uh, So I I wrote the hair that he was famous for had literally become a snare that suspended him from a tree. Now skipping down to the middle of verse 14, Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and, and killed him. In Deuteronomy 21, it says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is to be put to death, you hang him on a tree the body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man's curse is cursed by god you shall not defile your land uh, that the lord your god is giving you for an inheritance so again the lord ultimately provided uh, the vengeance in this situation and uh, absalom himself died for his sin and was was hung on a tree uh, i can't i couldn't help but think of the the parallels there of, again, this is, this is a son of David that is, is hanging on a tree. But this son of David would not fulfill the line of Judah. He would go down into the depths of the earth as they buried him in a great pit and put stones over it. Neither David nor Absalom had the power to save. David was dependent on his God, and Absalom rejected God. So now let's consider Jesus. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus died for our sins so that we can say, just like David, You are my God. So I'll conclude with this quote from Spurgeon. What is your sorrow, dear friend? I will not stop to go into any further particulars, but whatsoever it may be, there is grace stored up in Christ sufficient to take all your sorrow away. Come, aching head, lay thyself down upon the bosom of the loving Jesus. Come, weary heart, lean thy whole weight upon his wounded side. Come, child of God, with the sad sad countenance and the red eyes of sorrow, look to the man of sorrows grief's close acquaintance, and learn from him where the river of salvation perpetually flows. If the Lord will but reveal himself to you, you will want no other consolation, for he is himself the consolation of Israel. Thank you.